Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. Um, first, I want to introduce my co-host for today, who is Yasmin Mohammed. <laughs> Yasmin is an ex-Muslim. She currently finished her first book called Confessions of an Ex-Muslim, which will be be publishing pretty soon, from what I understand. And you will also be able to hear more from her because she will appear on a new podcast with uh, Ali Rizvi, Faisal Al-Mutar, and I think some other people. Uh, it's a full ex-Muslim crowd. It's called uh, Secular Jihadists. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the third guy that's with me is Armin Navabi from mm -hmm. Atheist Republic. So, and also, if you want to hear more from her in the future, which I'm sure after hearing this, you might want to, I'll also, hopefully in the future, have an interview with her one-on-one -on -one and to hear her background story, because it's very interesting. Again, check out her her site. I believe it's on Tumblr, which is Confessions of an Ex-Muslim. And I wanted uh, Yasmin to help me do... Uh, this interview because we'll be talking with an ex-Muslim from Saudi Arabia and although I have I think a fair amount of knowledge about Islam but my knowledge about Islam is all based in what I read or investigate or what I can get from having conversations with others but myself I wasn't brought up Muslim or even religious in any sense so to me I think uh, Yasmin can be a big help in trying to she might ask questions that never would occur to me to ask, having lived a very similar situation. And so to introduce our guest today is Gada. And Gada was born in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia to a devout Shia Muslim family. And she left Islam when she was in college while she was studying chemical engineering in the U.S. from 2010 to 2011. And she finally left uh, Saudi Arabia for, uh, for good for about two years ago. And I'll let any more introduction be done by Gada. Hello, Gada. Hello. So is there uh, anything else you want to add to that? Um, I guess the only thing I can add is I grew up a minority within um, Saudi Arabia. I was treated differently because of that. And then as I grew older, I became my minority within a minority living in Saudi Arabia, which was uh, quite a challenge. In a minority within a minority, is that a, like Shia and being a woman or which is the uh, Being ex-Muslim and living ah, right. there. Okay. So if they didn't want to kill you before, they really want to kill you now. The funny thing is that I have met ex-Muslims in Saudi Arabia that are, that were ex-Sunni Muslims, and they still have the, uh, like, they think that they are better than me because they're Sunni or ex-Sunni. <laughs> and it's, I know. Oh, my God. They leave Islam, but the whole better than everybody attitude still stays with them and of course the misogyny stays with them too yeah and this is among the ex-muslim community you find yes that's among the ex-muslim atheist community in saudi arabia 
Yeah, it takes a while to cleanse yourself of all that garbage. It really does. Right, because you leave the religion, but you don't necessarily leave a lot of uh, prejudice behind with it. Mm -hmm, Because you're socialized with all of these things all wrapped together, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this um, from uh, another friend of mine who's been on the show before, Jennifer Sutton, who was a convert to Islam. But before that, she was uh, brought up uh, Mormon. And she said that, you know, the Mormon church, there was a lot of racism and discrimination. So she said even like today, it, she she no longer considers herself racist and has clear the ideas against racism. But she'll still find herself suddenly holding a racist thought, you know, when confronted with something. And she has to like kind of remind herself not to. So it's kind of like that, mm-hmm. right? It's like you still kind of hold, are programmed since you had it since you were young. You still kind of hold on to some of those ideas. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, although Majid Nuez is still Muslim, I was reading in his book Radical when he was talking about leaving Hezbollah Tahrir, which are the the terrorist group. And he was saying that when he left them, he had to rebuild himself from the inside out, kind of brick by brick. And Rada, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was pretty much my experience leaving Islam as well. Like you have to rebuild yourself and every step you have to think about like, okay, so I'm not this anymore. What am I? Like, what do I put in place of what used to be there? Was that your experience too, Rada? It was, and it led to a deep depression for a number of years. It was uh, very hard to get out of as well. You, especially that in that year, I wanted to do, I wanted to experience everything that I could experience before going back to Saudi Arabia. And it was I just wanted to try alcohol, wanted to go out. I wanted to just say all the blasphemous things that were in my <laughs> head. And I also wanted to find out, you know, what's my goal in life? And that was the hardest part is figuring yeah. out who you are and why you are here. Yeah, because we had a path before, right? We had exactly like this is what you do every single minute of the day for this purpose and now all of a sudden that's gone especially for shia they have a certain goal that they are working all their all their lives all their putting all of this effort so when the mahdi comes Mm -hmm. they just go out there and and help him because he's coming back to save humanity that's the belief in the 12th imam that will come again and bring uh, it's kind of the apocalypse story for islam isn't it Yep, it is. But for Shia, they take it quite literally. Right. It's more it's, it's more prevalent prayer... in uh, in Shia than Sunni Islam. Mm-hmm. Yes, because in uh, Shia Islam, they believe the Mahdi is alive. He's just hidden. He is waiting for <laughs> the right time to come out. And the right time to them, it differs who you ask. But it's usually a time when all the where... Jews are out of Israel. <laughs> Well, not really, because he's supposed to come at the same time as the Messiah, as uh, Jesus, but he has to wait until there's so much injustice and so much darkness in the world that we need him to come and save us. Um, Do you mind if we talk a little about you growing up in Saudi Arabia? Because for for a lot of people, it's just you kind of hear, well, women can't drive, and that's Outside of that, people don't know too much about it. So can you kind of describe your family upbringing and the atmosphere and 
how how it would be different growing up in Saudi Arabia in the Shia community versus Sunni? Growing up in Saudi Arabia really depends on who your family is. My family was not considered to be liberal, but they were not conservative either. They were somewhere in the middle. They were very religious, very devout, loyal Shia Muslims. They observed uh, all the celebrations that the Shia do, including the Muharram for Ashura. Um, they celebrate all the births and the deaths of all of the Imams and the Prophet. Uh, they they go on pilgrimages, not just to Mecca and Medina, but they go to uh, Mashhad in Qum in Iran, and they go to Karbala and Najaf in Iraq. And they also used to go to Syria before the war to visit the, um, the shrine of uh, Zainab. They're very devout from that side. And of course, they, it comes with um, just how they were... Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. Let me let me backtrack a little. So you're just talking about being raised as a woman in Saudi Arabia depends on what your family situation is like. Yes. So my family, as I said, was not considered to be very liberal, but they were liberal in a very conservative town. And I mean that by instead of they didn't practice segregation. Maybe I should just I should just interject for a moment here and clarify that or maybe you can clarify that liberal in Saudi Arabia is very different than liberal in Canada oh, or liberal in Chile different. or something. Um, yeah. I would say, I don't even know what the right word for liberal would be. Like, yeah. Well, well, to me, if like, it's to me, um, as a, well, what it would open-minded imply, like as far as like gay rights or women's rights. Oh, no like gay that. rights. Oh gosh. No, no, oh, no, no gay rights. <laughs> <laughs> like even yeah. the most, and, and, and this is, and you will find this a lot, like in Saudi liberal societies, they're all homophobic. None mm-hmm. of them are for gay rights. Like they would be all for women's rights, all for a, a democratic system, but not gay rights. Okay, let's backtrack again. So the way I would explain liberal in the Saudi sense, it would be that they would allow women to make a choice whether they want to fail or not. Education is open and nobody's forced to marry. And that's... To me, at least from what I have observed, that is a liberal family in Saudi Arabia. My family, of course, was not like that. Can I ask you, so th- those are the characteristics that would make them liberal. What would be the characteristics of a liberal family that would still be conservative in the Western sense? It would be in the Western sense? Like, that's, that's like for example... the liberal that I can think of in Saudi Arabia, honestly, like is mainly... a. Re- it all revolves around the women. It doesn't even revolve around the men at all. If so, if you look at a family and they're and, and you see their women not veiling, that's a liberal family. If it's mm-hmm. if in the family, the women are all covered up from head to toe, even the youngest ones. That's not that's a conservative family. That's your signal. That's a signal, yes. And it's uh, it it also opens or closes doors for marriages. My family was, I mean, if you still want me to talk about that, my family was considered more liberal than some because they didn't practice segregation as other families did. So and they I, allowed you to work too, right? And they allowed me to work and they allowed me to study as well. Mm-hmm. When you say segregation, so, you mean segregation of uh, men and women, right? Yes, that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. Like, 
my earliest memories, I have always been around my male cousins. Um, our get-togethers always had both the men and the women together. Of course, the women were covered up from head to toe, and usually after a certain point, they would um, go their separate ways, and then the men would be together and the women would be together, but it wasn't practiced. It wasn't like you can't talk to your male cousin or you can't talk to your female cousin. It was completely normal. Like I grew up and my best friend was my male cousin. And we talked on the phone regularly and he would come to visit me regularly. And it wasn't something that was frowned upon or they never thought something wrong of it because we were considered more open-minded from that sense. But Unfortunately, we were still very religious and very conservative. I was forced to wear the veil when I was nine years old, as did all of my female cousins. And how are Shia families treated by the Sunni majority? It really depends on how much money they have. (laughs) That's typical. It really is. Like, my family, for example, we have two factions. We have the, the rich connected um, faction that uh, sells the big robes the, that the the Saudis wear. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like a thobe? Not the thobe, the robes that they put on top of them. Right. Mm-hmm. The black. The and fancy the, ones. The fancy ones, yeah. My family, I have a faction of my family that manufactures them and sells them. Mm-hmm. And they're, they sell them to the royal family and um, the ministers and the like. Mm-hmm. And it's been the family business for a long, long time. They are well connected and they have a lot of other businesses and they're pretty rich. So they're treated pretty well. And then there's mm-hmm. the rest of us. We're not treated as well. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing where wherever you go. Uh, the bigger families that have big businesses and they're, are rich and well connected, they're treated with no discrimination, they get jobs, uh, they get promotions, they get houses, they get loans, they get everything. And then the ones that aren't well-connected and aren't from the bigger families, unfortunately, don't get that same treatment. So money money aside, if um, between, like, because I'm sure that, like, there's the discrimination there by uh, uh, class status, but if you're kind of, like, just lower middle class or middle class uh, Shia versus Sunni, what kind of discrimination might you face? Like, can you still study in university? Can you get, you know, the same jobs that uh, a Sunni can get? It really, really depends. If it's two lower, two middle class people, one Shia, one Sunni, it depends highly on the person that is hiring or the person that is on the committee that is approving for university. So you wouldn't say there's like institutional bigotry there, against there used to be yeah mm. there used to be um, before I graduated university yes it was institutionalized mm-hmm. uh, it was like my my aunt for example when she graduated she wanted to go into med school she was rejected even though her counterparts that were Sunni that were at the same level were accepted. Yeah. Mainly for the sole reason that they were Sunni, she was Shia. It really heavily depends on the person that is hiring. And there is no ethics committee that would be, mm-hmm. would go and be like, no, um, you're, no, no, there's no 
affirmative action, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. If I mean, if all else equal, they would definitely go with the Sunni than the Shia. The other so, systematic, one more thing yeah. that I have to mention, the other systematic um, discrimination that does occur in Saudi Arabia against Shia is that Shia are not allowed to serve on the National Guard because they are Shia. Because they can't be trusted? Yes, they are considered enemies wow. of the state. They also cannot serve on uh, high authority in the army for the same reason. They can join the army, but to a certain rank, and then they can't go about that. Of course, people are not ever openly atheist, are they? Oh, no. No, nobody is open atheist. Right. Uh, The only person I know that is open atheist is the son of a diplomat in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Oh, and he openly Mm -hmm. says he's an atheist? Yes, he's open. He openly says he's an atheist, and he openly says he's gay. Wow. And he lives in Saudi Arabia? Yes, he does. He lives with his family. His but dad he knows is he's protected. Yeah. Mm. There's one. <laughs> the one. There's one. There's one There's atheist one in Saudi Arabia. There's one gay atheist. <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. There's the one guy. <laughs> Everybody knows him. Oh, yeah. Bob. Well, he doesn't go around telling everybody he meets. But, mm-hmm. I mean, his friends... Uh, when I met him for the first time, he told me he was a gay atheist. Uh, he didn't know that I was an atheist. He just told me that. Oh, wow. Uh, he tells people that he meets that are religious at this as well. He's told his parents. He's told his oh. brothers that were... His brothers... I worked with one of his brothers. He looked like he could join ISIS. Oh, dear. And that brother knows that his brother is gay and an atheist. Uh, can I ask you the like day-to-day life that you like now that you you know you you live in the United States and you see how kind of daily life goes about versus Saudi? What would you say are like major differences that might shock people? From what I understand, like for example, there are no uh, movie theaters in Saudi Arabia. No movie theaters. Everything every day is honestly a struggle of how am I going to get from point A to point B? Yeah. Every morning. Um, especially even though we had a driver, I still had to figure out who's going to take me to work that day. Who's going to pick me up at the end of the day. If I want to go to the supermarket, who's going to take me and how long can I stay before my mother wants the driver? Uh, I swear it's the same Mm -hmm. thing. If I want to go shopping, of course I have to get permission from my family to go shopping because Mm -hmm. even though it's my money, I have to ask them permission to use it. Uh, if I wanted to go see friends, I would have to come up with an elaborate story of who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to meet them, how long I'm going to stay, and what we are going to do. It was extremely nerve-wracking and very stressful that I just stayed home. Mm -hmm. I would much rather not do any of that. I saved a lot of money because of that, which helped me escape. But well, there's not much else to do anyway. I mean, I lived in in Qatar for about seven years, and literally, there's like home or the mall. Yeah, it's pretty much the same in Saudi. It's either home or the or mall work. or work. And yeah, that's it. I much preferred to go to work, even though my my job was soul sucking. And at this time, are you wearing a baya? Yep, gotta wear the abaya and gotta wear the hijab as well. 
but not necessarily niqab. No, my mother was as horrible as she was and as religious as she was. The niqab was the one thing that she drew the line at. She would not wear it. Huh. And the matawa wouldn't come after you guys? They would sometimes. Usually her, not me. Mm -hmm. Because you're young still? No, mainly because I don't think they think I'm Saudi. Oh, right. That's right. Because they only pick on Saudis. Yes. If you look foreign, they leave you alone. They're like, okay, whatever. Is this because they have to try to make the effort to kind of be more tolerant towards uh, foreigners because they want to sell themselves as kind of a touristy place? No, not really. It's because they believe that um, the best way to describe it is they feel like they have a duty towards Saudi women to make them more pious and better. Yeah. Saudi women should know better. Is it is it Saudi women or Muslim women in general that they have? Muslim women. Muslim women, but Saudi women more specifically. Okay. Like somebody was on a somebody was telling us the story of how he went with his girlfriend to a um, a hotel in Egypt and they were showing their passports and these are ex-Muslim friends of ours and in the passport she had a hijab on so the people at the front desk knew that she was Muslim and so then they started bothering them they went up to the room and they were like show us your marriage certificate why are you in this hotel room together yada yada meanwhile I've stayed in countless hotels around the Middle East and nobody's ever given me any trouble because I don't have a hijab on in my photo and I have a Canadian passport. So they don't know that I was Muslim. So they just leave me alone. But if they get any hint of it, they'll expect that you follow the rules. And in that treatment, how are men treated differently from women? Like in Saudi Arabia? Yes, in Saudi Arabia. They're given so much more freedom. From the minute they're born, like it's from the get-go. Like men can, the boys can go out to late hours of the night. Nobody would ask them. Nobody would call them. If I would go over to my best friend's house, which was five minutes away by car, lives in the same neighborhood. My parents know her parents, all of that. And I I stay there until 10 o'clock. I would be getting phone call after phone call. Where are you? Why are you not home yet? My my brother, on the other hand, would go half an hour, an hour away, stay with his friends, no, no, not even one call. And the constant ayib all the time. Don't sit like that, you're a girl. Don't laugh so loud, you're a girl. Lower your voice, you're a girl. It's just constantly, as a girl, you've got all of these restrictions around you, 24-7. Uh, wow, that you boys- <laughs> Right? You just said what you just said, like brought so much PTSD right now. Yeah. Me yeah. remembering the things that my mother would be like, don't sit like that. Sit mm-hmm. straight up. Don't walk like that. Why yeah. are you walking like that? Stand better. Stand taller. Yeah. Don't talk and, like that. Don't laugh like that. And this is from childhood. This isn't like teenager or adulthood. This is like no, as a little like girl. Nine, ten years old, you'd be told this. And of course, the the big one, who's going to marry you? Yes. You do this. Who's going to want to marry you? Yeah. Yep. I heard that one all the time, too. And it's not just from the mother. It's from every single woman in the family that will tell you this. My grandmother, my aunts, my older cousins, my uncle's wives. 
same thing. I think that's an important point that when we when people discuss misogyny or patriarchy in the Middle East uh, or among Muslims, I think people make a mistake of mistaking patriarchy or sexism just being from the man to the woman. And I, the first time I, I started making, like, I I think I had this prejudice as well until I read uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali's first book, Infidel. And when she started talking about how so much of the misogyny and the the sense of purity, the sense of attack that, you, you know, you're, you're constantly on edge about how you're acting because other women might, uh, might either in your family or cousins or something like that might... Uh, you know, call you out or, or tell on you and try to keep you pious and pure. Um, so it, w w do you also see that a lot in Saudi Arabia that you see like a lot of the misogyny or patriarchy comes from the females as well? It comes mainly from the females. When I wanted to study abroad, my mother was completely against it, kept saying things like, I can't let my only daughter go abroad and study what will people say about us? It was my dad that after lots of convincing, convinced her to let me go if I were to find a sponsor to study abroad. Uh, she made fun of me because I wanted to be a chemical engineer. She said that it was a man's job. What was I going to be a plumber? <sighs> what do I want to be a mecha car mechanic? Because I wanted to be an engineer. So she like, just had no work? understanding of what an engineer is. No. Absolutely none. She said, what, you weren't going to work in a plant with other men? She mm -hmm. just didn't like the idea that I liked things that she considered more manly. She didn't like that I didn't like makeup or that I didn't dress up in the way that she does or that I didn't like shopping because she was a huge, huge shop shopping, shopping addict. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't understand why I didn't like gold because... Every Saudi woman should love gold. It was, and it wasn't just that. It was how, like my father never mentioned marriage up until my mother started mentioning it. And at 25 years old, I was called a spinster. Yeah. How? Like that word is, it's not even used here, except for like, you know, you'll, you'll read it in old books. But in Saudi Arabia, it's still like a commonly used word. And in Egypt and then all over the Muslim world. Wait, wait, the, the, the actual word spinster? Mm -hmm. spinster like, yes. I mean, the translation of it. But yeah. Spinster. Like, it's still something. And and I mean, at 21, you could be a spinster, right? Oh, yeah. Like... Yeah. In my family, in my family, women, the girls get married right after, right after high school. Mm -hmm. They're engaged yeah. when they're in middle school. Mm -hmm. And then they get married right after high school. Otherwise, what's wrong with you? And that why, didn't is anybody, something, why didn't anybody want to marry you? And that is something <laughs> that has been troubling my mother when I was there. Is that it's embarrassing? We will, and we will get back. We will get into it. Um, when I graduated high school and I finally was able to leave, of course, there's a story behind how I was able to study abroad. During my final, my senior year in high school, I applied to universities in the in the United States because I was so excited that I, I thought my father was on board and I was going to go study engineering and my dream was going to come true. I'm finally going to leave the country. And then I got accepted in Boston University. I was so excited. And then the bomb falls. My parents tell me that there is no way that they would ever let me go and study abroad. 
because I'm a girl. And it hurt a lot to hear that, especially that I was very excited and I did all the work. I paid all of the, the, uh, uh, the application fees. I, I took the SATs. I did everything that I could. I got all my letters of recommendation, translated all my, all my transcripts. And then still I got accepted in a really good university too. Mm-hmm. And they said, no. How old are you at this point? I was 17 I got ex- when I got accepted. It was my senior year in high school. And so what I did, I stopped talking. I went on a hunger strike. Oh. And uh, I remember I made my mother go all the way to Bahrain, even though I knew that the procedure to apply for the university in Bahrain was online and not in person. I made her go all the way there. At 6 a.m., knowing fully well that she will not be able to come back until 6 p.m. that day. So she was missing a whole day of work, and she was going to spend it with me, the person that tricked her into going, only to find out in the first five minutes when we entered the university that, oh, but it's, it's very evident that you have to do it online through the website. And it was, I think it was at that point that my mother realized that there's no winning with me. And uh, with coupled with me not eating and losing a lot of weight, and she was seeing that I was losing weight, that she finally came over and said, if you find a sponsor, you can go and study abroad. Of course, I had missed a deadline for Boston University. But I found, but I found a, a sponsor. A year later, I was out and I studied abroad. And I won. <laughs> and, I, and I graduated and I became a chemical engineer. <laughs> can yeah. can women at any age just travel? No. By, without the permission of, I think, a male guardian, right? The male the male guardian has to give permission at any age for even, a woman to... Even if your mother wanted to go abroad, correct? Oh, for, she has to have her husband's permission. Right. Which I think is an important point because that's that's the the part where I think a person in the West doesn't really get it. It's like, well, you know, you could wait until your college age, buy a plane ticket no. and just pick up and leave, but it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Like this. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with what you She's a Saudi female activist. Um, she's, uh, she's very unliked in Saudi because she's very unapologetic in the way she talks. I really, I really like her. She's, she's actually a family friend. I've never met her in person, but she's very outspoken and she has attempted multiple times to leave the country without a male guardian. She would go to Bahrain um, with a driver or something and they would always return, return her back because she doesn't have male permission. And she, until recently, I think now she's uh, not allowed to leave the country. There's a ban that prohibits her from leaving because of her activism. Wow, that's her activism. And her activism was trying to leave the country without a guardian. So, Gala, can I ask you, how do you feel when, because this happens to me, but I don't think it has that much weight when it happens to me versus a person like you. What happens to me is you talk about Islam and the suffering of certain people and the lack of human rights and you bring up Saudi Arabia. And while it's true that Saudi Arabia is not representative of every Muslim country, 
Um, and there's some Muslim countries such as Iran where also human rights are at a very low level, but it's a completely different kind of Islam. But you'll bring up a country like that and some Muslim apologists will take an attitude like as if that doesn't count. That's just Saudi Arabia. It's well, just that's a few million people. That's all. That's just what Saudi Arabia has a population of 21 million. Let's say mm -hmm. half of that are women. You're just shitting on all of those women that have absolutely no say in their lives. No say. When just to just to get an education, not even to work, just to get an education after high school, these girls have to beg their fathers to sign a piece of paper. And even that doesn't guarantee that they will be able to go to school because they still need transportation. If they don't have transportation, they drop out of college. And as soon as they piss off their dad, their dad can say, that's it. No more school for you. Pulls them out. As easy as that. He can do the same thing for work. If mm -hmm. He can do the same thing for marriage. Girls don't have the right to marry whoever they want. They are... And this is a story that really resonates with me because I know the person, uh, her, she was, she had a lot of potential. She was very smart. She wanted to be a doctor. Her parents wouldn't let her because then that means that she would be mixing with the opposite gender. And this is a liberalish family. Not, I'm not going to say liberal, liberal. They're, they have women that veil and women that don't veil in their families. And she's a well-traveled girl. Both of her parents are well-educated. Yet her family, when she wanted to be a doctor, said no, because that would mean that the people that, that she might not get married because she would be in a field that, would, that was not segregated. That really hurt because I saw how she really wanted to be a doctor and it was shot down because of something so stupid as a potential mate. And her family was not very open about who she could marry. She could only marry from certain families. Her first, the first guy that she tried out turned out to be a complete and total monster. And uh, I was really glad that she dropped him instead of going with it, even though her parents were pressuring her into accepting. And she lucked out in the end, but her story was as unlike any other any other story. She lucked out that her second try was actually a normal human being from a liberal family that allowed her to continue her studies, and she ended up getting a master's degree. After she got married, her husband was way, way more liberal and way more understanding than her own parents, because her it's, parents just wanted her to get married. That was it's their goal. It's just a gamble, right? It's hit or miss. Like, you never know. It all depends on your guardian. It all depends on your owner, if he's going to be a good person or not. That's, that's, that's the struggle of a Saudi woman. It really is a hit or miss. Will your, will your father let you study? Will your father let you work? Will your father marry you off to the highest mm -hmm. bidder? You don't know. Yeah. I remember I was... that about my students. I was just going to say, my students in Qatar, the same thing. They were, even though they were studying and after they finished studying, they were going to get jobs. And so it seemed like they were of the uh, the lucky women in the country. There was this constant threat above their heads that they could never 
step out of line because they didn't want to miss out on the opportunity of continuing their education. So it, it, it's not so like freedom rules. doesn't even really mean freedom either. Like there is no such thing as actual freedom. It's just, it's just very like, it's a spectrum of prison really. There's so many rules, so many rules. It's unbelievable. And sometimes, like my father used to always threaten whenever I did something wrong that he would pull me out of work. Yeah. And it was the last threat that really made me buy the ticket and come to the U.S. Can I ask you, how, when he says pull you out of work, how could he do that? Does he not let you leave the house or can he actually like influence where you work to tell him like, you know, you, you she can't come to your work anymore? Like how does how does that Oh, he can he can just go to the employment office and say I present my um, permission for my daughter to work. I don't want her to work anymore. I don't give her permission, and because it's, it's Saudi Arabia, they have to comply with the guardian. And then he tells the driver, "Don't let Rada out of the house." No, he just doesn't let me out of the house. <laughs> he doesn't have to no. tell the driver anything. Right. So even even when women work, the women who do work they are working under the permission of someone, either their father or their husband or something like mm -hmm. that. Yes, it's a condition of the work. Yeah, it's the same thing with education. When I um, when I got accepted for uh, a scholarship, my father had to sign that saying that he gives me permission to study. And when I got uh, a job, my father had to sign that he gives me permission to work. And it actually says that if, if the legal guardian decides at any point that he does not want his daughter wife whatever not to work he has the right to pull her out so also aside from what i was asking you about like the point of view of saudi arabia i've also had a lot of contentious encounters with a lot of the islam apologists who are western based um i had a few encounters with a uh, dalia mugahed who wears a oh, hijab dear. and was on the daily show with trevor noah and she's a big advocate of not just the hijab but that the hijab in general is very rarely forced on women i have my serious doubts of what the percentages she believes uh globally and i would even add of even women who wear any kind of veil whether it be the hijab or niqab in western societies even the us the percentage of when she says not forced and just chosen to what degree the parents that really have no putting no obligation at any age for them to wear it but she was on like the daily show and she says you know most most women don't, are not forced to wear it it's just a choice she's speaking for all muslim women at this point and she says all it does is privatize sexuality uh as it's a good thing and trevor noah kind of applauds that he's like oh yes because you know we mm. should be able to do that and private privatize the sexuality so we don't judge them based on their looks and he got a big applause from that and so did she and when you see that i mean because I, I mean again i'm not i'm not ta i'm not uh talking or, or debating her from the point of view of a muslim or a muslim woman or anybody who has been in that position but i try to get my, my i try to at least empathize with the point of view of people like you but how do you feel about that because and also maybe yasmin as well because you both have worn veil at some point that really pisses me off it pisses me <laughs> off whenever somebody says that the veil is a choice 
It is never a choice, even when like the likes of Dalia Mujahid says that, oh, it's a choice. I chose to wear it. Why? Why did you choose to wear it? Because your your God told you that you have to wear it. It's your duty to God to wear it. It was not a choice. And it's not a choice for the millions of women that live in the Middle East. It's not a choice for girls like me when we were nine years old and had to wear it. It was never a choice for me. It's never a choice for my cousins. It wasn't a choice for my mother. It wasn't a choice for any single woman that I know personally. So when she says that it's suddenly a minority that forces women to veil, I just want to go and punch her in the face because that is not true. And she is lying. And she knows it. She knows she's lying. And she is not helping. She's not helping at all. All these women that are forced to wear. So why? How many How many more women have to go out there and tell her that she's lying? That, like, it's just, I can't even, I'm sorry. Like, this is really pisses me off because for every single story of, hey, it's my choice. You go, you go visit the ex-Muslim subreddit and see like 10 stories of girls. I can't do this anymore. I hate wearing the hijab. I only do it for my family. And this is here in the West not in Saudi Arabia or Iran. It's in the West. This argument of choice, too, like, I find it curious that no other women choose to wear the hijab except for Muslim women. Like, if this was something that people would just choose, like, oh, I choose to wear a pink dress or I choose to wear a bandana, you'll find that across the world. But nobody else is saying, hmm, I choose to wear a hijab. It's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from the pressure from your family. I was nine years old, just like Rada. And you get told a good girl to go to heaven and for Allah to love her and to protect her because we love her so much because she's like a piece of candy, a piece of meat, a jewel. jewel. (laughs) Lots of different objects can be used now in this story. But basically, we want to protect you, so we're going to wrap you up and make sure that you're protected so that you can be perfect when your husband goes to unwrap you when when he's ready to fuck you, basically. That's, that's the idea behind the hijab. That's what you're being told constantly by society. When you, when you put the hijab on, everybody goes crazy around you. Oh, mashallah, you look so beautiful. Oh, look at your face is glowing. Oh, blah, 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 blah. They don't do that for girls that don't wear hijab. I've had people say to me, I've had actually, it was weird because I was in, I was not even wearing hijab at this time. But I had a student say to me in Qatar, oh, teacher, you can't trust her. She doesn't even wear hijab. And I'm like, listen, bitch, (laughs) look at the person you're talking to. Like, I'm not wearing hijab either. But I knew that was a part of the society because I grew up with that. When a woman wears hijab, you can trust her. She's a pious, good person. And if she doesn't, she's all the opposite things of that. So it's not really a choice, is it? It isn't a choice either when... You know that you won't get married if you don't wear it, when people will look at you differently, when your family wants to kick you out if you don't want to wear it. It's When men on the street will bother you even more because they're going to think like, oh, well, you're asking for it. You're the one who's not covering yourself up. So obviously you want us to comment on you. And it's just not, it's the whole idea of choice is given free will. But we're not get, get, getting that, not in Islam, not when God tells you you have to wear it. 
-hmm. not what it's an obligation in your religion to cover up. It's not a choice that I don't understand how they can say that it's a choice. Can I tell you my my perception of what what's wrong with it? And you guys both can correct me or say or tell me if I'm on point. But the issue I have when I hear uh, Dahlia or Linda Sarsour and um, what, what's that other girl from a uh, Muslim chick or something like that uh, talk oh. talk about these issues about the hijab, and they say, well, it's just a choice. They there's a certain element there that I think they glaze over when they say, well, uh, this is just my connection to my religion or Allah. And but that connection was established when the parents from a very young age telling you that you, you have to wear this because it's part of the religion, because Allah mm -hmm. tells you should wear it, because hiding your your, your parts of your body it is for sexual reasons that you shouldn't reveal it and if you do it's negative it makes you a slut or a spinster as you guys were saying before yeah. and when you're pushed and pushed and pushed these ideas into your head your whole life mm -hmm. and then i can i can understand how some of these women later will say well no no it's my choice but that choice mm -hmm. is based on that indoctrin indoctrination now when when they say it's a choice it's not completely untrue, right? It, they are choosing to do that, but it's not. I, what what worries me is that the liberal audience that is like watching uh, the Daily Show and Trevor Noah and Dalia Mugahed, they're only hearing the word choice, and they're not they they're not imagining all the background and upbringing that comes from the parents about how it's you know it, it's almost like basically slut shaming a woman to wear it. And I've had people tell me, and these women will say it as well, is that, well, it's just a veil over over your head. It's like wearing a scarf or nuns do it, et cetera, et cetera. And to this, I give, I've given the example that like um, Mormon women have to wear long skirts. Now, is wearing a long skirt bad thing? Am I against long skirts? Of course not. But also with mm -hmm. the long skirts for Mormon uh, girls, it's something that they're pressured to a horrible sexist degree that they must wear. They're not, they, it's not an option for them not to wear it, right? And even the ones who might say, I choose to wear it, well, yes, but this comes with a huge cultural pressure that you that you were brought up into uh, to wear it. And it's it seems that that's clear. If I mention Mormons to a lot of Westerns, they get that, but then they forget completely about, about it when we're talking about Muslim women. So what do you guys think is this fasc fascination from the new liberal community to defend the hijab and, and applaud Trevor Noah uh, for saying, Oh yes, you know, it privatizes sexuality and it, 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 um, it keeps the male gaze away. And you know, you got liberal audience who are not Muslim. Don't, don't wear the hijab and applauding this woman, applauding Trevor Noah for it. Like aside from the Muslim women who say it's a choice, like how do you also you feel about that? And am I on point pretty much, or am I just talking out my ass? Well, from my perspective, I think you're totally on point and I don't even like to get into it. Like I wouldn't get into it with Dahlia because I know that she's a straight up liar. I wouldn't get into it with Linda or the Muslim girl chick. I wouldn't try to. What I would say is, OK, that's great. That was your experience. That's fine. It's a choice for you. But for the millions of women that are living in Saudi Arabia or that are living in Iran or that are living in lots of other Muslim countries, it's not a choice for them. So for you to be in a language that they'll understand now, for you to be all privileged <laughs> in your Western world, 
talking about it being a choice, well, you know, you don't have any uh, religious police going around with a whip, whipping your um, your ankles for showing or, or whatever. So let's just focus on that then. And let's just ignore these people that are insisting that it's a choice. Fine, it's a choice. Let's let it go. Because they are, it is Stockholm Syndrome. I know what that feels like. I was brainwashed too. And nobody would have been able to get through to me. So I don't even bother trying to get through to them. And also there's an element of dishonesty where I don't think they're, if you ask them questions or if you put arguments against them, I don't think they're going to respond with honesty. You're absolutely correct because they know the truth. Like when, when Linda Sarsour posted that thing about like uh, women in Saudi, there's more women in Saudi Arabia that were in government than they were in the U.S. or something stupid like that. I can't remember what it was. Um, she's not that dumb. Like she knows when she tweets that or when she tweets something about Sharia law being good for women, like she knows that she's being dishonest. But most of the people are, that follow her are the people that you were describing that are clapping in Noah's audience. And they're people that don't understand, the, they, don't, they don't know enough about the religion or they don't know enough about the culture or they don't understand enough about the topic that we're talking about. So for them, it's just like, oh, yay, happy, happy lies. Yay, it's a choice. Everybody's, every, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Because it's just easier than having to deal with, with unhappy truths, right? Because then it's messy and it's yucky and, and nobody wants to talk about that. Let's talk about positive things. Women, you know, feminist Muslims and, and Muhammad was the first feminist. And before him, you know, women were, were nothing. And now look at them so empowered. Okay, that's great. Everybody just wants to, to you know, to be happy. Honestly, I think it's more about them trying to spread Islam or that they have this idea of Islam in their head that they're so delusioned that this is the right path. They believe that because they were privileged enough to wear hijab, that they were able to choose all of this for themselves, that this should be the reality for everybody else and that if everybody joins Islam, my version of Islam, of course, not Saudi Arabia's or ISIS's or somebody else's extreme fundamental fundamentalist version of Islam. No, my version of Islam. If they join it, then the world will be so much better. Yes, it will be so much more peaceful. All the women will be covered up. Rape will be non-existent. I really think, honestly, maybe they are lying, but I think the other part is that they really do believe that this is the truth or at least that that's what they want to promote is the truth and so they can get more muslims on their side and they stop being a minority or maybe they feel like they're so different because of this so-called choice that they made of veiling i honestly wouldn't i don't know all i all i want them to do is stop lying or stop saying that it's a choice because it isn't I think it's cool to be oppressed these days. I think it's cool to be part of a minority. And it makes you, you know, like everybody was celebrating the, the woman in the Olympics that was wearing hijab. There were other Muslim women in the Olympics as well, but they weren't wearing hijab, so they weren't being celebrated. But is it, isn't that so backwards that 
the hijab is basically an instrument that is forced on women for the most part in the world. There are some parts of the world where they where it's passed by law, and even if it's not passed by law, which I think is a is a bad metric, right? Because a lot of people say, well, it's not. It's legal in this country. It's illegal in that country. Uh, it's not forced by the government. But even then, it's like even in the United States, if you're sometimes you wear the hijab because your parents force you to. It's not about just the legality. So, considering that it's for the most part forced on women. Isn't it bizarre that, for example, like Hillary Clinton will tweet about how progressive it is that we see a woman in a hijab and when it should be completely the opposite? Shouldn't the feminist liberal point of view take a picture of the woman who's not in hijab and say, oh, isn't this progressive? Isn't this great? What does this come from that we're, that it's, it, we're celebrating an instrument of oppression? We even have the hijabi on Playboy and celebrate her. I was just about to say that. You know, this is a conversation I've had with my boyfriend for such a long time now. It just doesn't make sense to me why anybody would want to promote such a conservative ideology. I mean, these are liberals, supposedly. They're against everything that the right wing is against. Yet they promote an ideology that is very much right wing, that Mm -hmm. oppresses women, that oppresses homosexuals, that, that wants to end freedoms, yet they promote it as if it's this amazing, new, great thing that we should all accept. The only I thing I that... can think of is that they just want more voters. I can't think of anything, any other reason as to why they would do this. I think they just don't get that it's right wing. Like you just said, it is right wing, but they don't see it that way. They see him as left wing because it's it's oppressed or it's or it's not oppressed necessarily, but it is a minority group. So it has to be protected and they don't see it as, yes, it's a minority group, but it's a right wing minority group. Does that make sense? So do you, do you see it like this? That so if you if you see Islam like in a country like Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan or, or Qatar, you, you see the, the religious misogyny there which it will be so will have so many characteristics like the religious conservative right wing of the US but what people know in the US the liberal people the people on the left all they know is their right wing right they know the christian evangelical right wing and all they know about islam is that it's disliked by their right wing yes so they they're like i dislike this right wing i dislike the George Bushes, the Trumps. I, I just like the evangelical, uh, you know, um, Sarah Palin's or Michelle Bachman's. And but they see that those people hate Muslims. And so their reaction is that this is my natural ally. And to remain an ally implies that they have to see past the same characteristics that they dislike from their right wing. Do you, do you think it's that? I totally think it's that. And I and I think that's why you had these people that like when that BBC clip came out about the the women housewives of of ISIS and why people were saying, "Oh my god, this is so offensive. Like, oh my god, I can't believe my money is going towards BBC like yada yada because they're not recognizing that there is a right wing, there are right wing Muslims. ISIS are basically like they're far worse than the they're just like the alt-right in America. That's your alt-right Muslims. Like, but they're but they don't see them as the same. It's just hate. There's one hates because of skin color, 
and the other hates because of religion. But they're exactly the same. Whether you're an, an Islamic supremacist or a white supremacist, you're on the same side of the coin. You're on the hateful side. And, and I think that's what a lot of progressives and liberal people don't get. They don't, they don't understand that. To go back a little to uh, to your upbringing, when you went to the United States to study ch chemical engineering, were you an atheist yet? At what point did you lose your religion? I think I lost my religion. It was a more of a gradual thing. My first semester in university, I did my best to adhere to all of the rules. I wore the hijab because my father came with me the first few months, and I thought it would be... Uh, like. I thought I would turn, if I took my hijab off, I would turn my back against everything that they brought me up with. Then my second semester, I realized I really don't like wearing it. I don't want to wear it. I want to feel wind in my hair. So I took it off. Slowly, I started eating non-halal food. And then as time progressed, I just started becoming more liberal in my thinking. And I believe it was around 2010 that I realized that I really don't believe in this religion. I'm doing all of these practices, the praying, the fasting, the observing of whatever events that they, that the Shia do. I do it just because my family made me do this, but I myself don't believe in it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And by the time I was, I would like to say my senior year in college, I completely let go of any type of religion, became became an atheist. And that's when the depression started and I wanted to figure out who I was and what my path was in life. Started reading more, started... And I think what... What really made me leave the religion was actually something so little. It wasn't even a big event that happened that made me suddenly just declare, you know what, I don't believe in this. I'm going to stop doing it. It was just a night where I took off my hijab, went to a party for um, that my that my that the students in my university um, set together, had a few drinks, and just had a genuine good time without pretending to be somebody that I am not. It was that, that I woke up the next day and I realized that's what I want to be. I want to be myself. Mm -hmm. I don't want to even, I don't want to lie to myself anymore. I want to be myself when I am with myself. And it was a great liberating feeling, but it was also like a start of a whole different type of chapter in my life where I had to figure out myself. And what point did you decide? Because you went out to back to Saudi Arabia after college, right? Yes, so I did. So at what point did you decide, like, I, I need to go back to the U.S.? It was, it was right after a series of events happened. So I was, I was at first diagnosed, I, I was first diagnosed with a type of carcinoma on my face that I had to do a surgery on. Right after that, I had to break up with a guy that I was at that time really in love with. And I thought that this was going to be it. But I had to break up with him. 
Um, my job didn't go so well, and I lost my best friend. Um, all of that in the span of less than a month. After all of those happened, one after the other, he realized that I really had nothing left in Saudi. I, I was, there was nothing left for me there. I had to find something else to do. Like at first, the reason I wanted to stay was I wanted to build up my resume and I wanted to stay for my friends and I want, and I thought, you know, I could see this relationship through, but no, none of that worked. Everything that I was working for just crumbled. And at that point I realized I had nothing to lose. If I left now, I could start over again and it would be fine. It took it took a few tries, but I finally did it after I met somebody here in the U.S. that agreed to house me for the first few months when I came, and I booked my flight and came. It was, a, it was those events that came together as a cluster that really made me realize I had nothing left in Saudi and I just wanted to leave. So you booked your flight and came, but you had already had your dad's permission to travel then. Yes. Because it was for that it was, easy. A lot of women would leave, I guess. It was if it was that easy, yes, a lot of women would leave. A lot of women have contacted me asking me how I did it. And to be honest, the only the only answer I have is that my father had already renewed my passport a few a couple of weeks before and I think he did it at the same time and I was going away for a uh, work trip. And he gave me the permission because my family was okay with me traveling as long as I was watched, as long as somebody was watching me. If I go with work, then my boss was watching me. If I'm going with a cousin or an aunt or an uncle, they were watching me. So they would feel better as long as I was watched. And you know what the funny thing is? When I went on my work trip with my coworkers and my boss, my boss bought me drinks. I got drunk with my boss. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, so when you were talking about, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to ask because, um, to clarify, so you were able to leave because your father had renewed your passport for uh, a work trip. Um, but yes. is, so, did you go on that work trip and, and just kind of exit visa? And so you went yes. on the work trip and you just kind of like you know slipped away, or how did that work? Uh, no, I had to go back. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure that I wanted to do it. Like I made the decision that I was going to leave in March and this was in December when I went on the work trip. But when I went back to Saudi, I got into a huge fight with my parents. I was so scared that they were going to find out I was an atheist that I just booked my flight and left. They found out I was an atheist afterwards for sure. How is your relationship with them now or after you left? Uh, it's non-existent. My, um, when I left, I had I had got a lot of hate emails, a lot of threats, mainly from my mother. She said a lot of horrible things. I think um, when I was um, trans when I was writing up my application for asylum, I asked one of the girls on the uh, on the X, XMNA page, uh, she's, uh, she's a translator, I think, to translate a few words in Arabic to English for me. And one of them was like traitor, whore, uh, uh, 
I can't, I forgot what, what else, what, what it was. Some other words. I mean, I honestly can't really say them because I don't know them, the translation to them in English, but they're mainly curses and derogatory terms, you know, me being a woman. And at first she thought, I was like, did the man say that to you? No, it was my mother. My mother was very, she knew how to choose her words. She knew how to hurt me. She knew my best friend was very close to me and that his death really hit close to home. And so the first thing that she says, I wish that you died instead of him. I wish that you were dead instead of bringing up all the shame to me. Uh, her emails mellowed out over time and now she just sends me Islamic propaganda and saying things like, I wish I still had my daughter. My daughter had abandoned, has abandoned me. Even though I replied to all of her emails saying, I want you back in my life, but she completely ignores them because she wants me back in her life as a Muslim girl, not as her daughter, the way she is. So my it's father, very conditional love. Very conditional. And of course she has, I, I mean, she's done so much worse than just those emails. She's, Spread the rumors that I tried to kill her. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, she's spread a lot of rumors about me, all sorts of them. Um, she's sent a lot of threats and a lot of hate emails to me. My dad was more of a slut shamer. Mm -hmm. He called me a cheap whore, that I opened my legs to everybody. He says that I know that you're not really faithful to this man that you're with now. I know you're, you have a bunch on the side as well. What the fuck? Yeah. He's an Arab man. What do you expect? Um, he never apologized for anything that he said. He just wants me to talk to him and tell him everything about my life, even though he's said pretty a lot of things that are pretty unforgivable honestly and he still wants me to talk to him and tell him about my life and include him what, what, what so if i introduce him to my boyfriend he's not gonna go and scream at me as call me a cheap whore again of course he will i know he will it's so confusing like what it's this weird emotional mind fuck well, my family has been ostracized by the community after I left. The reason that they're acting the way they do is because they're lonely. Me leaving has caused them to become, yeah, rejects. Everybody makes fun of them. Um, they keep calling, they tell my dad that he's a horrible father because he didn't control his loose daughter. Look at oh your loose God. daughter going out, not wearing her, her hijab, bad-mouthing the prophet and the imams on in the internet. And then, and ever since that article, it wasn't even an article, it was a, a broadcast message that was sent to the community about me being an atheist from the conservative town that I am from and how people would never dare do this before because the penalty for apostasy is death. I've, I've taken, I've completely like stopped tweeting, stopped 
writing things with my name. I just wanted to live a normal life where nobody was coming after me because I wrote something bad about Islam or about the prophet or about one of the imams or whatever it is. This really hits home with why so many people are still closeted ex-Muslims because they just don't want to have to deal with this basically a bomb, not just on them, like, like you get all the blowback, but it's on your whole family. And I understand that. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I, I thought about before that and my family has disowned me so the family can let them back in. And they take this whole disowning thing seriously, too, that they met a colleague of mine in an airport once upon a time, and they didn't even mention that I was their daughter. They just mentioned that I was a girl they knew. (laughs) And this was in the U.S. to a colleague of mine that doesn't even know anything about Saudi Arabia or my story. She just knows when she when she told me the stories like I saw these old people in the airport and they mentioned that they knew you. So when I asked them how they knew you, they just said that you were just a girl that they knew. Like even to a complete stranger, they didn't mention that I was their daughter. They really take this whole disowning thing seriously. But then they're also emailing you saying I lost my daughter. Yeah. So they're just, it's like they're being forced to disown you because of all the they're being ostracized in the community but they don't actually want to is that fair at least maybe not my father but my mother for sure she doesn't want me if i'm not muslim my father has shown a little bit of remorse a little bit not too much he is still as he says in his emails to me he is still an arab man he still has arab man honor And he cannot let his daughter do whatever she wishes because that goes against his nature as an Arab man. But he understands why I don't want to be Muslim anymore. My mother is the complete opposite. She just wants me to be Muslim. She doesn't care what I do as long as I identify as Muslim. So Mm -hmm. I can, in the end, go to heaven. To ask you about that specifically, about the religious issue, um, that kind of ties back to, you, you know, the the kind of sexism your mother spews and pushes on you. And there's other elements as well that um, you'll see a lot of apologists such as Reza Aslan will point out any kind of um, oppression, sexism, um, fundamentalism. You'll say these are actually cultural issues specific to certain the region you're talking about, not to do with Islam. Or even if we do talk about Islam, people will say, well, this is just Wahhabism. And they'll almost talk about it af- as if it was a completely different religion. Almost like we're not talking about Islam anymore. Um, so how do, you, how do you react or what do you, what do you think about when people kind of disconnect these uh your your experience the problems you have with your with your parents and your mother and people say well these are for cultural issues or it's a it's it's not really about islam it's about more of an extreme form um that's just wahhabism or salafism how do you like do you think there's any truth in that or there's a little bit of truth in that i would have to admit that like you would see in the more liberal areas of the middle east that this isn't as big of an issue, but 
even in the mildest forms, virginity is is highly is looked at as the most important thing for a woman. It's so, it's still there. Like the if women I grew are, up. Uh, she grew up Shia, I grew up Sunni, she grew up in Saudi Arabia, I grew up in Canada, but we have so much in common. And the same can be said for women that I've spoken to from around the world. So Islam is the, the common thread. And I think Sarah Hayter also has a really great quote on this too, which I can't remember verbatim, but it's something like that. It's like, well, if if if, if none of this has to do with Islam, then why is it the common thread between all of these women's stories. Um, so yeah, it's to different degrees. Of course, like Hada was saying, depends on your family and, and how liberal they are. But even so, the, like the most liberal of Muslims is going to be more conservative than the most conservative of Americans, for example. Like it's, it's not, when we say liberal in that world, it's very different than, you know, what people think of when they think of the word liberal. But yeah, it's it's all to varying degrees, of course, because we're all different people. There was or has been uh, numerous documentaries in which um, somebody from the West would go to Saudi Arabia and interview a bunch of privileged women. And they would all say that they like their life the way it is, that they don't want to drive because they have their drivers, that they feel that they're privileged because in here... They have drivers, they have somebody taking care of them all the time. They don't have to do what the Western women do, like in America, where she has to work or she has to go take her kids to school. She has to do everything for her herself and for her husband. It's just too much work. And she feels so privileged to be in Saudi where she's not expected to do any of that. And I call bullshit because I honestly enjoy this struggle. It's, I'm not going to say enjoy. It's a struggle. It, it really is. But it's freedom. It's freedom. It's being able to right now go out the door, not having to tell anybody where I was going. It's knowing that the money that I have earned is mine, all mine. Nobody has the right to come and take it from me. I don't have to go pay a driver every single morning to take me to work and then every single afternoon to come and get me back. I don't have to worry about a curfew or who I talk to or what I eat or how I sit or anything like that. It's just a normal person's struggle every day. It's like a, it's like when I hear that argument that you talked about now, Lalo, it makes me think of somebody saying like, oh my gosh, it's so great to be in a wheelchair. Somebody pushes me around all the time. I never have to walk never have to go upstairs like that's exactly what it sounds like or no sorry it was actually you had you were talking about the women in the yes. in the documentaries like that's how ridiculous it sounds to me when somebody is is happy that they are imprisoned or that they are being being handicapped really i i honestly think it's mental illness that i wasn't able to do this <laughs> It's kind of it's an unfortunate thing, really. I really wish that I have said that so many times that if I did tell myself that maybe I would still be there, probably married to my cousin, probably pregnant with my third or fourth kid. 
But at the same time, I'm so glad that I didn't do that. I am so glad that I thought it was all bullshit and I just continued on with my life. And it made me extremely unhappy, but at least it got me out. Though I did tell myself, though, I did, for a very brief period of time, I told myself, maybe I'll find a good husband. Maybe he won't be so bad. Like He won't be like my parents. Maybe he'll allow me to do the things that I want to do. But isn't that such a sad expectation for your life, isn't it? To to to, to it is a sad to to think that my life might be better if I just find the right man to let me be happy. I don't. Women deserve so much more than that. Yeah, but in Saudi, that's pretty much what every girl aspires to be: is to find a husband that would allow her to live her life, would be a good husband that would give her all of these freedoms. It's very unfortunate, but it's the reality of so many Saudi girls. Was there anything you wanted to add, Gada, before uh, before we finish up? <sighs> Let me see that paper. Maybe I forgot something. I have a question. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you, because this is something that I've heard about before, but I've never, I've never met anybody who's actually had experience with this intricate underground world in Saudi Arabia where yeah. all of the the seedy troublemakers, like the atheists and the gay people. Okay. Oh, like, tell it's me actually, about it. It's actually something I did want to talk about. And awesome. I, I'm sorry I didn't talk about that. So I didn't know about this underground kind of lifestyle until after I graduated and went back to college and went back to Saudi. And at first it sounded like it's so far-fetched. How do people get alcohol? How do people do all of that? How do people date in Saudi? And then... I I had a friend that I've known since high school who introduced me to his other friend that he thought he was setting me up with. That didn't work. But that friend introduced me to who the guy that happened that ended up being my boyfriend at the time when I was in Saudi. And that guy was a DJ. And he was also like the point of contact for drugs and alcohol in uh at least his his group of friends. And he introduced me to a whole set of friends that threw parties inside the compounds in uh, like the private compounds inside. Of course, all these happen either in private compounds or in, in private homes in, uh, in Saudi or in Bahrain if uh, if they could. But my first experience was in Saudi inside of these compounds. And it's it's kind of like a secret handshake of some sort. Like you don't know for sure if this person is into that lifestyle until you, you talk to them and you start to feel them out. And um, I, I don't know what the, the exact like I don't I, I don't know it's like I don't know so it's not like you, you don't go and like tip the person in the bank and that takes you back to a whole big party no it's just got to know the right person and to me it was the guy that I was dating at the time was the right person <laughs> for another person it could be you know their drug dealer or their uh, their alcohol dealer it could be 
their boss, their coworker. I love how the drug dealer and alcohol dealer come in the same breath. Well, yeah, because it's uh, <laughs> it's under the same bureau in Saudi. It's both yeah. punishable by death. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, yeah. The underground party is mainly inside the compounds, and it's all about who you know. And if you, so you know the right person, you get in. You get in. And when you say the compounds, are these like the American compounds? The American compounds, like Aramco. compounds. Yeah, Aramco, for example. Um, the American consulate also throws parties. And that's actually one of the better ways to meet these people is mm-hmm. outside, the con- outside the country. Like if you go to Bahrain, you go to, you know, certain clubs or certain restaurants and you like see who is there, get a feel and then when you go back to Saudi, you go look for these people and get to know them and then slowly get invited to these parties. And so when you walk into that party, is everybody dressed like, is it like party atmosphere? Like, do you take oh, off yes. your hijab and niqab no hijab, or your yep, abaya? Yeah, it's a party party. It's a real party. It's with like a real party. Al- with, with alcohol, with drugs, with everything. So it's just like a club but in a private, in somebody's home or? Yes, it's mainly, it's usually in somebody's home, yeah. Do they, do you think they party even harder than maybe you might find in the U.S. because of the restrictions? Oh, yes. And speaking from a girl that partied both in Saudi Arabia and outside of Saudi Arabia, way harder. Yeah, even for expats. Even when I was an expat in Qatar, I drank so much. All the time. I don't even like I don't even drink here. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I have easy access to it and it's super cheap. In mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, you like pay two hundred dollars for a cheap bottle of whiskey. Also, we were obsessed with pork products. We'd That's eat like true. ham wrapped in bacon just because. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm here, I'm like, whatever, I prefer vegetarian food. Like it's it's just what you're not allowed to have all of a sudden is just really you really want it when you're no, there. I still want to work here. Like, I go out of my <laughs> way to buy the bacon and buy the sausage for the reason that it's bacon or sausage. No other reason. I got the image in my head of, like, a possible, like, TV show called, like, Saudi Women Gone Wild. You know? And, it, and it's just, like, I'm imagining, like, a party of, you know, in these compounds. And they're just, like, in one hand, there's whiskey. In another hand, there's just, like, ham wrapped in bacon. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, you know, it's a very different idea of what going wild is. It's like eating bacon, right? It's just like, oh my God. It's just like, it's kind of like when you, like girls going wild when they lift up their shirts. But here's like a picture of somebody eating bacon. Her ankles. It's like, yeah. You see her ankles and her wrists. It's like, oh my God. You know, you know, it's actually funny that when I was going through the, uh, uh, the underground, like it was it was a great release to have some, to have that. It was extremely difficult to hide from my parents, but it was still a great relief to have an underground life where, you know, people were just having a good time. Nobody was, nobody talked about anybody. All we did was, you know, drink and smoke hash and party. And on occasion, if people were, open to it would have sex very very rarely though girls were still you know wanted to be pure and wanted to wait until marriage so of course they went the back door um oh yeah tell us about that because i remember learning about that when i was in in qatar and i was fascinated that's a god's loophole right 
it's yeah. uh well, I'm still pure. I'm still waiting for my husband to open me up, but um, you can still use the back door. It's uh, so this is totally used among uh, Muslim women as well. The whole God's loophole yeah. thing, right? Huh. Yep, the God's loophole. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Catholic thing, Lala? No, well, actually, I think it's like an evangelical thing. But there's like a comedy oh, okay. group that uh, made it like a whole uh, music video about it. Uh, Garfunkel and Oates. Oh. And it's about like Christian girls uh, using, you know, having anal sex to get around still being virgins when they're married. And this song is called God's Loophole. That's the first time I had heard. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard that guys do that, too. Like they're they're still like they're like, oh, no. What was that? They're straight, but they still go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I'm not gay. My boyfriend is kind of attitude. Yep. Yeah. As long as he's the one doing it and not the one being done to, he's okay. He's totally okay. Um, but the other thing that I was actually was going to talk about when I was going through that kind of life, I really wanted to write a book about it. Like a girl, a Saudi girl's gone wild bunch of stories, but I don't know if it would. I'd buy it. I'd read that. Yeah, yeah, you should still write it because just the juxtaposition between your normal everyday life and then how this is like so completely the opposite, but still super tame compared to what we would consider going wild over in the West. I was thinking of writing it from the point of view of like both boys and girls at the state and uh, like the virgin girl that just wants to have fun and the virgin girl that that found the God's loophole and the... <laughs> I don't know. It's it was a it was a it was a project in my head for a long time that never saw the daylight. Yeah, I think there's a certain fast uh, like in it becomes more interesting when in a world that's uh, everything is to the extreme that yeah. when you're just so repressed and you can't do anything exactly what happens and that's why I was almost pretty sure that when I asked you about if Saudi parties are crazier than what you even see in the West, I could just imagine like you know the the wanting to let loose right nature of it and i think there's a there's an interesting thing there if in the in the sense of a story that you might uh you know work into a book of like you know the, the describing the the repressed nature of day-to-day life and how it just explodes mm-hmm. when when you just um find these par- parties and compounds yeah i've seen girls i've seen like a married woman with kids come to one of these uh one of these uh, parties and she was completely wasted in the first hour just yeah. dancing and like and she's like I have two kids back at home I just want to let loose my husband doesn't even love me and it was true his husband doesn't really like her she was forced to marry when she was 19 she was 27 and she already had three kids Jesus. now wouldn't she ever be afraid that it would get back to him because she could get in a lot of trouble right I think at that point in her life, she really didn't care. She really just was so, she felt, you know, it's. You reach a breaking point, just, right? Where you're she just re- like. She reached, yeah, she reached that breaking point. She really did. So would that ever happen? Would people ever tell on each other? Like where they're. No. You'd f- okay. At least not in that, not in, not in the secret underground society. Nobody tells anybody anything. They would cover for, like I had my my friends covered for me so many times. Mm-hmm. Like 
if it weren't for them, my parents would have probably locked me up somewhere in a basement and never let me out. But they, because they, we all know how our parents are. We all know how our lives are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, we all had each other's backs, both the, both the guys and the girls and the guys. And I've, and you've, and I've mentioned the other underground society, the Saudi atheists or the Saudi ex-Muslims, they were still misogynistic and still had all of that, um, uh, like thoughts in their heads. But the other, but the other part, the guys, at least the ones that I knew that I partied with, we had a sort of a secret or an untold or unspoken agreement that they would take care of me no matter what happens, that they would not take advantage of, you know, of so the So you girls totally trusted them. Her. You weren't worried about anybody dropping anything in your drink or anything nope. like that. And, and if anything, they were, uh, at least that group, they were completely very protective. Like they would watch what the guys, what the other guys were doing. If they saw their girl was getting a little too drunk, they would take her aside and put her like in a car, stay with her oh. until the end. Uh, drive her. I've had I have I've had the guys drive me back home at like at three four a.m. because I was afraid that my parents would find out that I was not home. They would leave the party just to drive me back home, and uh, they would like stop. And this has happened. Like they would stop the music. Everybody stays quiet if a girl's phone rings and her parents are on the oh, phone. Oh wow! Yeah. The whole party just shuts were, down just for a phone the call. The whole party. Yeah. And if anybody is drunk and screaming, they would like take him out so the girl can take the can take the call. It was like they were very. I trusted them completely with my heart. Do you think what happens is uh, that because people get so wild at the parties and. And it, it just it's an explosion of liberation that it's also easy for guys who show up to take advantage of the women. And if they do, well, then these parties aren't really going to work and it's not going to continue to happen. Yeah. Right. Women yes. will stop coming. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. like if that happens like to three women at one party, like the women's like, I'm not showing up at these things anymore. And then the whole thing's, you know, conceptually yeah. is ruined. So they have to be like, OK, we're doing this, but we also can't let it transform into some kind of, you know, take advantage of, of women kind of uh, events if not this is this is not fun anymore for anyone yeah mm-hmm. that's uh that's mainly it so no hookups really happen it's mainly just having fun and getting and letting loose the hookups happen but very 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 rarely and not because the guy when like comes over and and tries to like get a girl to come back home with him if actually if that happens the guy gets kicked out of the party and becomes like excommunicated and never invites it over to any other wow. party again really yeah. <laughs> See, it's interesting because you say it's like so crazy, but at the same time, it's very tame. It's super tame. This sounds like a party I want to go to. Yeah, it's it's very important because, you know, in, in Saudi in Saudi, it's all about appearances. So if a girl's reputation goes down the drain, it's on all of these guys, and they don't want that to happen. They still care about us as as their friends. So, and they want these parties to be fun. They don't want you know, the girls to be like, oh, what if I go there and then everybody knows about my reputation, then my reputation is ruined, then I never get married, then I never get this and I never get that. So it's it's pretty controlled. It's a controlled environment, but it's also a let loose environment. I have I have smoked more hash in my life in Saudi Arabia than I have ever outside. So when you say drugs, that's what you're basically talking about. Smoking yeah, but issues. there's but there's also um 
like my gay my gay atheist friend, he gets all sorts of other drugs, but he's hardcore drug addict. So, but that is so not too not typical. Common. In, in a... No, the more typical one is hashish. Everybody smokes hashish in Saudi. Mm-hmm. Even the religious people do. I had yeah. a guy who was a an ISIS sympathizer, and he smoked hashish. It also knew as he also knew I was an atheist and didn't care. But he was an ISIS huh. supporter. He was an ISIS supporter, yeah. And he knew my then boyfriend and always asked him to go to prayer. And my ex was uh, an ex-Muslim. Oh, and he's he's uh, he's in the U.S. now. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just drop that in there. <laughs> yeah. Cause, uh, anyway. Was well, there anything else you wanted to add, Gather? Before we uh... no, that's all. I just talked about the parties. They were pretty amazing. <laughs> that's that's really interesting, actually. I, did, I would never <laughs> occur to me to even ask about the parties. I'm glad it, it was brought up. <laughs> I, I mean, I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Gada, for your, for your time. You're very really welcome. Um, I don't. It, it sounds like you, you're not too big on social media, so there's nothing you want people to follow you on or anything. No, I'm not big. All right. I, I mean, yeah. Well, Yasmin's uh, social media account for Twitter is uh will be in the description uh and mine as well and uh thank you also yasmin for co-hosting with me thank you for inviting me to co-host this was awesome i really enjoyed this conversation i learned a lot yeah as did i well thank you guys <laughs> <laughs>